morning. So is Christmas over at your place? How many of you take down your uh, celebration lights before the New Year's? Raise your hand. I was taught that you're not supposed to do that by my granny. And I'm sure there's a reason, but I cannot remember what that reason is. But Christmas for 2018 is now in the past, and for some of us, we are looking forward to the new year, or perhaps not. This Christmas season has been a mix of life and emotion. It's been a time of joy and sorrow, confidence and concerns of elation and regret. For many people, Christmas is just another Christian holiday. But is Christmas just a reflection or a remembrance of a particular time and moment when Jesus was born? Did God simply one day look on his calendar and say, Okay, son... It's time for you to become flesh so that you can suffer for the sins of the world. I don't think so. God has always had a plan and a purpose, and he is a God who acts in history. The scripture even tells us before the foundations of the world, Christ was crucified, so to speak. Today we're going to be looking at God's affection for the nation of Israel and his plan. He was so affectionate toward Israel. Why did he create Israel? Well, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. And if you would stand for the reading of God's word, hopefully this will give us a clue as to why Israel But now thus saith the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, your Savior. Because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you, I will give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Let's always remember that the power resides in God's word. Thank you. You may be seated. God has always had a people. 
Even Adam and Eve was his. The children of Israel suffered through the years, much of the time because of their unfaithfulness in their covenant with God that God had made from the very beginning, even with Abraham. And yet God in his his people, even though they could not see it. Many of the people of God felt like some of you. How many times have we cried out, where are you, God? Don't you love us? Don't you hear our cry? And God sent prophets to the people to let them know who they were in their relationship with God and who God is and his relationship with them. But much of the times they simply would not listen. Not unlike a lot of people in churches today. God had a purpose for this small nation. You see, from within these people, he was going to bring forth a savior for the world. He loved them. He created them. He chose them. He remained faithful to them, even in their infidelity. And he used mighty empires to bring them back to himself so he could bless them, so that he could bless the world. And God wants to continue to bring people to himself, to be reconciled to him, to save us. And he does this now through the church, through Christ followers, through You name yourself a Christ follower. You see, if you are a Christ follower, you have purpose. And while we may not see the hand of God working for his glory or our good through the pain, God is doing just that. He did it in the Old Testament. He did it in the New Testament. He's done it through the ups and downs of church history, the the bad and the good decisions of leaders. But he continues to work today. In the coming months, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament. Now, in a crowd this diverse, some of you have been studying the Old Testament like forever. Some of us, however... We may be new to the faith, or maybe we've just now revisited what the church is and we want to learn, and we've been focusing on the New Testament. Great place to start. Who is Jesus? What has he done for us? What is salvation? What is my life like as a Christian? And so the Old Testament may seem a little out there for some of us. And listen, that's okay. The Bible is a unified book, but there are differences between the Old and the New Testament. But they are complementary. The Old Testament is foundational. And don't you let anyone tell you differently. The New Testament builds on the foundation of the Old Testament as a further revelation, a complete revelation of what God started in the Old Testament we see in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament establishes the principles and serves as an illustration for New Testament truths. The Old Testament contains many of the prophecies. They were fulfilled in the New Testament. The Old Testament provides the history of a people 
whereas the New Testament focuses on a person. In the Old Testament, God deals mainly with his chosen people, the Jews. In the New Testament, he deals mainly with his church. And the physical blessings that were promised in the Old Covenant, they give way to the spiritual blessings of those who are Christ followers in the New Covenant. So, as a summary, the Old Testament lays the foundation for the coming of the Messiah, who would be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. The New Testament records who this person is, that is, the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Both Testaments reveal the same holy and merciful and righteous God who condemns sin, but he tries and he seeks to save the sinner in his atoning sacrifice in Christ. Both Testaments reveal who God is to us, and he shows us what we are to him and how we are to live by faith. Make no mistake, the Old Testament and the New Testament are ultimately about Christ. Starting in January, we'll be looking at the book of Nehemiah. Now, this book may not be very familiar with you, or you may not be very familiar with it, but it is about God rebuilding and restoring a people who have lost their identity. God's revelation of himself and his purposes sometimes seem to get lost as we, the people of God, live in a culture where their values are at contrast with ours. And we fight this all the time. And yet, what's interesting is, God uses those cultures that are not part of his culture to bring us closer to him. God did that with Israel. These great empires were God's tools for his people to know him. The Old Testament, we can see God moving toward the coming Messiah. During the season of Advent, the four Sundays before the coming of Christ or Christmas, We looked at the babe in the manger who suffers for our sins. But we also looked at his second coming as he comes as king and lord of all creation. There are two comings of Christ. The one in the past, the one in the future. And then there's the subjective coming where he comes to us as individuals and we receive him as lord and savior. In the meantime, we all live in a fallen world. Suffering, pain, and death are part of our everyday experience while we also see the beauty and the grandeur and even life that exists in this world. And just like Israel, we live in a constant state of war with our surrounding culture while living in our culture, while trying to redeem our culture. Culture war, what is it? Conflict especially political over cultural values, particularly in the United States. 
Now, as we go through Nehemiah, I want to say that there are going to be cultural issues where Nehemiah and those around him are in conflict. And the application is that we have values that are biblical while others don't. And for some of us, I pledged this 28 years ago that we're not going to be political in our sermons, and I will stay with that. But I want you to know that this world has chosen politics to change moral values. And we are going to address the moral values that are in conflict. We will have to address some politics, but this is not a political series. And don't ever make that mistake of thinking that I've reneged on my promise 28 years ago. Here in the States, the idea of the culture war began in the 1960s, and it revolves around social issues. There is a schism in our country that's responsible for the polarizing debates. We can't even be friends with people with whom we disagree anymore. Over separation of church and state, abortion, gay marriage, gender issues. You see... All of us individually are facing personal challenges. We have to face our own personal failures and even our victories. But there is something larger going on other than our personal challenges and victories and failures. As Christ followers, we are part of a greater struggle. While we struggle with our health, while we struggle with our finances and our family relationships and friends and a host of other important aspects of our lives. We are here for a greater purpose than simply getting through our struggles and challenges. God is always work around us today just like he was in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And we are at odds with the values that are being taught in our education system by our politicians, the entertainment entities, and social media. It is all around us. And we wonder, are we going to make a difference for Christ? In his New York Times opinion piece written in June of 2015, David Brooks wrote an article entitled The Next Culture War, and he is not a believer. And here's what he said, Christianity is in the decline in the United States. The share of Americans who describe themselves as Christians and attend church is dropping. Evangelical voters make up a smaller share of the electorate. Members of the millennial generation are detaching themselves from religious institutions in droves. Christianity's greatest setbacks are in the realm of values. American culture is shifting from the orthodox Christian positions on homosexuality, premarital sex, contraception, out-of-wed childbearing, divorce, and a range of other social issues that I've already mentioned. And more and more Christians are feeling estranged from the mainstream culture. And he suggests that Christians have already lost the war. 
Rod Dreyer wrote this in Time. We have to accept that we really are living in a culturally post-Christian nation. The fundamental norms Christians have long been able to depend upon no longer exist. I'm sure that there were times that Israel felt the same way. Whether it was by the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. There were times that they were asking themselves, are we losing our identity? Do we even know why we exist? Are we ever going to make a difference? Did they even know what it meant to be the people of God anymore? And what are we to do about it? Our questions are, do we simply preach the truth of the gospel and we remain isolated from the world around us? You can hear different preachers and different philosophies within the Christian community. No, we're supposed to be socially active. No, if you you get socially active, then they're just going to bleed on you. There are villains waging war against Christian values. But folks, listen to me. There are victims of these same values and this indoctrinations that are destroying their lives. Do we ignore the victims that have adopted the cultural mores And just let them be expendable. This is one of the reasons we are enthusiastic supporters of set free ministries. We serve and minister to men who are addicted to drugs and alcohol. And there is a strong probability that we'll be opening up a place for women. Just pray for that. You see, as a church, we must maintain our purpose and our mission that God has given us. Our purpose statement that's in your bulletin, your mission statement that's in your bulletin, reflect what Jesus said were very important, if not the most important aspects of our community. And that is the great commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our being and love one another. And then the Great Commission to make disciples, to teach them to follow Christ so that they will be able to love God with all their heart and love each other. You see, remembering the first and the most important commandment to love God and each other should not isolate us from this culture. It should thrust us out into the culture so that we can help those who are victims of this culture. We are to go and make disciples. We are to be engaged. In the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, by the way, were used to be one book in the Hebrew Bible. God uses both his people and politics, great empires, to ultimately... Bring his glory to surface. And all these Old Testament passages ultimately lead us to Christ and his first coming in Bethlehem. 
I want to remind you what Isaiah said. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, because you are precious in my sight, honored And I love you. There are two takeaways I want you to get from this message. I guess you could tell this is the introduction. Number one, God loves his people. And he has a purpose and a plan. Not only for us, but for the world. He wants to use us in his plan for the world. Number two, our personal lives... We are going to experience the suffering and the heartbreak of a fallen world in which we live. But do not be afraid. For God has redeemed you through Christ. Don't be afraid of the obstacles or the challenges that come your path. Do not be afraid to be actively involved in your workplace and your community. Remember, you are here for a purpose. I want us to look at several people that God used when the people of God were in exile and they were losing their identity. Isaiah warned the people to be faithful, but they did not listen. Listen to what Jeremiah said. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seven years, 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Isaiah, the beginning of Isaiah, was Isaiah saying, Be careful. God is going to bring judgment on you if you lose your identity and you're unfaithful. And then the last part of Isaiah is to the church, so to speak, the people of God in exile or having difficulties with the culture. When you get to Jeremiah, what Jeremiah was telling the people is, listen, God's bringing the Babylonians, don't fight it. If you fight it, it's only going to be worse because they are God's judgment hand upon you. And you're going to become a wasteland. But don't fear, after 70 years, I'm going to make them a wasteland. Babylon took the Jews as captives to Babylon, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. And guess what? The people suffered. They suffered, even as God was working his plan we still think that God's perfect plan is to make us happy and give us everything we want. But then most of us know that the Persians took over the Babylonian Empire and he raised up a mighty king named Cyrus. And here's what we read in Ezra. This is the reason Ezra is so important. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. A pagan king was moved by God to set the people back to Jerusalem to build the temple. God rose up a ruler that did not know God to bring the people of God back to God. And not only did he release them, he returned all the stolen articles and he gave them everything they needed to rebuild the temple. And of course, this is not my notes, I just want to let you know that the older people who remember the, new, the old temple, they grumbled because the new temple wasn't as good as the old temple. Give me a break. Do you remember Daniel? Daniel was one of those captives, and he was a part of the Medo-Persian Empire, trusted advisor of King Darius. He was hated. He was thrown into the lion's den because of some subordinates under the king, and God saved him and intervened, and he continued to give counsel in high places of this culture of the empire of the Persians. Do you remember Esther? We don't associate them together. These these are people who live right around at the same time. God has placed these godly people in high places of a culture that doesn't understand the people of God. Some people who hated the Jewish people convinced the king to destroy the Jewish people. The king did not know that his queen, Esther, was a Jew. And Mordecai told Esther, you've been placed here for such a time as this. And through her intervention, the heart of the king was dissuaded. And even though his decree could not be undone, he says, I'll make another decree. Give the Jewish people all the weapons they need to defend themselves. What's the conclusion of this? God used individuals and empires to accomplish his will then. And folks, he continues to do the same thing today. Whether it was the Assyrians or the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks or the Romans, God used powerful enemies of God to bring the people of God back from their sin and help them to understand what they were and are. And you know, while they were in exile, they were in constant conflict with the culture. And you think, oh man, I'm so glad Cyrus let him go back and build a temple. Do you know that they were in conflict then with the culture around them? So God brought Nehemiah And he went to King Artaxerxes and he said, I weep over the condition of my people. And I know this sounds political. You're just going to have to 
bear with me. I promise you it's not. Nehemiah builds a wall. Get it out of your system. The problem with the people of God is that they had lost their identity as the people of God. And you might say, Neil, are you using the walls that Americans lose their identity? You know, that's a political debate. But I will tell you this, with or without the wall, the people of God are losing their identity. It's not about that wall out there. We are not in exile, but we are struggling with a culture war. And even though the book of Nehemiah is not very familiar to us, it is relevant to Western Christianity today. Nehemiah was a Jew serving in the Persian court. He lived in a similar situation. He was facing the loss of his own traditions. Jerusalem lay in uh, ruins. The people of God were in reproach. And you know what? He had to learn how to be faithful to God while he was living in a political system. And like us, Nehemiah has to learn to deal with our culture while living beyond and above our culture. Just like in the days of Daniel and Ezra, Nehemiah, God can and does use Christ followers in the public square to serve his purposes. We pray for all in authority. Pray especially for those who are Christ followers not to fall. Amelia Baptist Church is more than a place where we teach what is right or what is wrong, or how to live. Our tag, we try to make true. We are a Christ-centered church that focuses on family. We preach Christ and him crucified as our only hope, not Washington, D.C., and not even the believers who are in Washington, D.C. But we don't simply teach or preach moral improvement. You can go to many other churches where it's how to live a better life. Folks, we need to know not simply how to live a better life, but we need to know the one who changes our life so that we can live a better life. We do not reduce the Bible to a code book of human behavior. We can never be good enough to please God, to make things right between us. Only Christ can do that. That's the reason we center on him. Moralism produces sinners who potentially behave better, but they're not transformed. Only the gospel transforms. So why did God create Israel? You know, when the Bible says that God loves, it means that he's chosen for purpose. God chose his people so that his son would be the savior of all who would come to him. 
all the work of God in the Old Testament was so that we could have Christmas at the right time, in the right place, around the right people. And the Savior was born. The people then could not see that. And some of us, all of us, have trouble seeing God's purposes and plans in world events. In the leadership of powerful men and women who play chess and use us as pawns. And though we may not see God's purpose and plans, the question is this for us. Do you fear when you pass through the waters? Because you cannot see God's purposes and plans. Do you fear when you go through the rivers that you think are going to overwhelm you? And do you fear as you go through the fire? The question is, can we trust Christ while we're going through the challenges of life? Our personal challenges. So it leads us to our final question. Have you brought your life into harmony with the purposes and the plans of Christ? Or are you continuing to resist? The first step is stop being Lord of your life and surrender to Christ's Lordship, receiving Him as your only hope to be reconciled to God and for a life transformed. The Bible calls Jesus the Prince of Peace. No nation is going to give you peace. No ideology is going to give you peace. I don't care what side of the political spectrum you are. You can think utopian thoughts all you want to, and there will only be suffering and death in that utopia. Christ is the only one who gives us that peace that we all long for. The world cannot give it, but he gives it in a world of conflict. So the question is, do you want to know that peace that the world cannot give that only comes through Christ? We come just as we are, folks. We're never going to get so good that God's going to accept us into his kingdom. He only accepts what Christ has done. Would you pray with me? Father, we would love for our lives to be better, but in our hearts, we know that we're not. We try to improve, and maybe step by step, we make some progress, only to fall back. So, Father, give us the courage to come empty-handed to you, seeking your forgiveness. Seeking your acceptance through Christ. 
give us the humility to surrender. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.